you can tell me who invented the light bulb, right? Thomas Edison, right? Everybody knows Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Thomas Edison invented a light bulb with a paper filament. Can you tell me who invented the filament that makes these lights shine throughout? Nobody knows because he's a black man. I remember my school days. I was never taught anything good about black people. And you cannot have a society that is brought up like that, both white and black, that only teach what's convenient to the teacher. Michael Holding is one of the greatest cricketers of all time. From 1975 to 1987, he was a key part of a West Indies team who dominated the international cricket of that period. This was not least because of their legendarily terrifying battery of fast bowlers, of which Holding may have been the quickest. The combination of his languid run-up and lethal delivery earned him the nickname Whispering Death. After retiring from playing, he earned another colossal reputation as a commentator and broadcaster. His new book, Why We Kneel, How We Rise, considers racism in sport and society and his own responses to it. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Michael Holding for the big interview. Michael Holding, welcome to the big interview. Thanks for having me. Let's start, I think, where your new book starts. This is uh, Why We Kneel, How We Rise. And you start by going back to July last year when you spoke during a rain break in the test match, as as you often get uh, in an English summer. During that break, you spoke from the heart uh, in a way that I think surprised a lot of people who'd become used to you as this very cool, calm, dispassionate cricket broadcaster. And I, I was wondering, did you surprise yourself in what you said and how unguarded it was? No, I didn't surprise myself at all. I think I surprised myself with the reaction that I got from so many different people around the world. I have been living this life and have had things like that in my mind for decades. So it's not something that would have surprised me in me expressing it. I tend to express myself freely. You know, a lot of people don't particularly like sometimes when I express myself freely because they think you should be a bit more diplomatic with things. But I reserve my thoughts until I'm asked. When I'm asked, I tell you. If, if you don't like what I'm telling you, well, you shouldn't have asked. And Sky gave me the opportunity to talk and to, to express my inner feelings, and I did just that. History is written by the conqueror, not by those that are conquered. History is written by the people who do the harm, not by the people who get harmed. And we need to go back and teach both sides of history. And until we do that and educate the entire human race, this thing will not stop. In a lot of the chapters of the book, you are quite tough on yourself now for not having said more about racism in sport and said it earlier. You, in fact, call yourself selfish. And this is at the time when you were a fast bowler with that great West Indian team of the the 70s and 80s. Was it at the time that, that nobody asked you? Is it as simple as that? No, not really. It was just a matter of me trying to protect myself. You know, history has shown you, Andrew, that black men or black people who have spoken up about anything to do with injustice and have demonstrated or showed in that they're unhappy with anything, they have been ostracized. You can go back in history as deep as you want to go or, or as recent as you want to go. Colin Kaepernick is the most recent. But I was just protecting myself and saying, hey, I don't live this life. I'm only here for a few months wherever I was experiencing this racism because I don't experience it at home. 
I'll be going home shortly and I'll be leaving it behind me. And that was just the way that I dealt with it at the time. Looking back at it, I, I can definitely say it was just being selfish. But I think it was the right thing to do at that time. Otherwise, perhaps I wouldn't be here talking to you now. You are quite right about that that ostracism that is a risk for any athlete who takes a stand on this. And you mentioned Colin Kaepernick, who I think does seem a very significant figure for what he has inspired in sport. When you first heard of Kaepernick taking a knee, uh, because I, I know you're a big American football fan, what did you think? Well, I thought he was being very brave. That's the first thing I thought. Being very brave to be demonstrating it like that, and especially during the American anthem because we know what America is like when it comes to things like the anthem and the flag. And I thought, well, he's being very brave, but perhaps he knows exactly what he's doing. Perhaps this is the best way to draw attention to the problems that people of color in America are facing. It certainly has started a movement and he has sacrificed. He has paid, paid the price for doing it. But at the same time, the rest of the world has benefited. A lot of people have benefited and we can see that the entire atmosphere, the entire climate, has changed where things like that are concerned. He set the tone and now others are following his footsteps. The book does reflect and refract your own experiences through those of several other athletes who you speak to, including Usain Bolt, Hope Powell, Thierry Henry, Naomi Osaka, the great Australian rules footballer Adam Goods, who has also been a guest on this programme. Did you find that their experiences of racism in sport have varied much, whether it's with with their sport, with their generation, with their country, or is it just the same nonsense that follows non-white athletes around everywhere? It hasn't really varied a lot, Andrew. And a lot of people have asked me that, that question. And the, the problem is not the country that they are from or their backgrounds or how rich or how poor they are. The one common factor in all that is their skin color. And because of their skin color, they've experienced racism and I've experienced these awkward situations, if you want to, to say it kindly. And that is the reason why I got these people to contribute to the book, why I asked them to contribute. And I'm so grateful that they did so that people can see that irrespective of background, irrespective of the country, irrespective of how rich they are, because some of these folks are multimillionaires. They all experience the same rubbish because of their skin color. We spoke a long time ago, or about 10 years ago, around the time of the, the documentary film Fire in Babylon, which was made about that that great West Indies team that you were a part of. And I think it's important to note for listeners who may not be of the cricketing persuasion that that West Indies team were not merely a great cricket team, but in terms of their dominance of their particular sport, they were one of the greatest teams that has ever taken the field in any sport at all. But that film also tried to portray that West Indian team as kind of an expression uh, of a, a, a black consciousness, if you will, which was an analysis I recall you being a little bit uncomfortable with at the time. Has that changed? Do you now retrospectively feel different about what that team represented? No, not really. I think what people were trying to imply is that we saw ourselves as representing a, a particular narrative. And we weren't trying to represent a particular narrative. West Indians around the world, and West Indians in particular in countries where they were more or less not recognized, not looked upon as equals, used us 
to try and bolster themselves, to make themselves feel better. And as I've said to people then, and I'll say it now, when we were playing, all we wanted to do was win, irrespective of who we were playing against. We were playing against white teams, it didn't matter, played against brown teams in India, Pakistan, wherever we played, whoever we played against, we wanted to win. It's just that because of the situation that West Indians and people of color found themselves in, in certain countries, they didn't identify with us and saw us as some kind of people leading the way for them and helping them in their lives. And yes, I recognize that certainly that helped to a degree, but I do not want people to think that was our narrative as a team. We wanted to win and to beat everyone. Were you, I mean, a similar question phrased a different way. Were you alert at the time? Because this is something you mention in the book, I think. Were you alert at the time to the fact that you and your fellow pace bowlers of that West Indian team were being written about in a very different way than you would have been if you were four or five white men who bowled at a similar pace and with a similar ferocity? Yes, we were very aware of that, but we did not allow that to affect us in Andrew. We were going out there to do our job. We went out there to win cricket matches for our team and, and for our nation. And we did not allow what people were writing on, what people were saying to affect us. We were not going to let them call us names and say derogatory things and then think, oh, we have got to try and please these people. We have got to slow down or we have got to go less bounce. No, that was never in our mindset, but we were well aware of it. And we saw articles, we saw headlines that were being written. But as I said, we didn't worry about it. But even then, after my playing days, I have worked with Sky for 20 odd years now. I have not been afraid to say on Sky, oh, thoughts have changed. When England used their four pass bowlers to win the Ashes and they hit Ricky Ponting on the face and, and drew blood, they were all cheering in the stands. English people were jumping up, fantastic bowling, great fast bowlers. So we're aware of it. We know the hypocrisy in, in this world, but we don't allow it to affect us. But to go back just one final time to that strand of thinking, did you at least say, if you think of that 1976 tour when the West Indies came to England, absolutely demolished England to that astonishing reception, especially from uh, Caribbean immigrants and the descendants of Caribbean immigrants in the UK, did you have an appreciation of what it meant uh, to that section of fans and why it meant that much to them? Not in 1976, Andrew. 1976 was my first time to England. I was 22 years old. I didn't know a lot of people in this country. I came up with the West Indies team. I traveled on the West Indies team bus. I stayed in the hotel. I went to the cricket matches. That was basically it. I would have met a few West Indians, yes, because we had quite a few West Indians who played country cricket and knew people in England. But I wasn't really interacting with the society as, as, as much as the, most of the other guys. I was pretty much keeping to myself and just doing my own thing. When I started to come back to England later on in life, in the 80s and throughout the 80s and playing cricket and working and that sort of thing, constantly interacting with people in the society and moving around England was when I really got to appreciate what it meant. 1976, you saw people in the stand jumping up and down. Yes, what you thought to yourself, oh, they are West Indians just supporting the West Indies team. That's great. Later on in life, I really got to understand exactly what it meant to them. 
Well, I want to go back to a bit before 1976, indeed, quite a bit before, because it's a question I'm always interested to ask people who've got to the very top of their sport, because most of us, as we come up through childhood playing various sports, it's usually a process of discovering, and usually quite early on, that we're really not very good, and we're really not going to go all the way by now. But do you recall a particular point of thinking at some point in your childhood or adolescence, not a point of understanding, not just that you were actually good, but that you might be really, really properly good? No, I, I never thought about it. And to be honest, unlike most young people, you hear them talking now unless they talk about always dreaming of playing for England or always dreaming of playing for Australia or, with, or whatever country. I never, ever thought about that. I never aspired to play cricket for Jamaica or the West Indies. I played cricket, I played football, I did athletics, I played table tennis. I played all sorts of sports because I enjoyed doing them. I got more opportunities to play cricket because of the fact that I was a member of Melbourne Cricket Club that played a lot of cricket and went out into the rural areas and played against boxside companies and things like that. And in fact, Andrew, I enjoyed going through all the different processes, you know, Jamaica on the 19th, West Indies on the 19th, but I never saw cricket as a career. My mother would never have instilled that in me to say sport is going to be a career. She was a teacher. She always thought about getting an education getting some sort of qualification, as she used to call it, get a piece of paper behind your name. And when I got selected for the West Indies team in Centre Fire 76 to go to Australia, the first thought that entered my mind wasn't elation. It was sadness. It was the fact that I was not going to be home for Christmas. And a young man growing up in the Caribbean, Christmas is a big thing to us. It's a big family occasion. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be missing it. And so, it, you know, it wasn't a great thing for me to think, oh, whoopee, I'm finally made the West Indies team. No way. Similar question then about that team. Was there a point, whether it was you or the group, started to understand that there was something actually genuinely remarkable in cricketing history going on here? It wasn't until the mid-80s when we recognised that we, how good we really were playing and how well we were doing against all the countries around the world that we thought to ourselves, hey, we haven't got a bad thing going here. And certainly we were desperate to try and keep that winning situation going for as long as we possibly could. And throughout my years after playing against Australia 75, 76, you know, we won almost everything. We won even after that great team retired, most of the members of that team retired right up until 1995 when we lost to Australia. But that was something that we were trying to make sure continued for as long as we possibly could. You know, when you play with a team like that, when you come up against great teams as we did and are able to beat them and you know that you and your teammates have such a good comrade with going and you're making people at home in particular so happy about the way that you're playing, it lifts you as a human being. It lifts you as, as a person and you feel good about yourself and you feel good about things that you are doing. Did it ever occur to you as well, and I, I speak as somebody who was growing up as a massive cricket fan in Australia during that time when that West Indian team were at their peak, because my recollection is it wasn't just fans in the West Indies or fans elsewhere of Caribbean descent that you were making happy. Australian fans in particular, I can recall having a very weird relationship with that West Indian team. And You used to come over every couple of years and absolutely jump up and down on us. And weirdly, Australian crowds seemed to absolutely love you for it. Did you get a sense of that? 
definitely not just a sense. We were very well aware of that. We turned a lot of Australians against their own team. And we recognize that and we thank them very much for that. You know, people ask me about the racism situation in Australia. And certainly I've had racist incidents and I've mentioned them. But I keep on telling people that's minor compared to the good times that we had in Australia. We, we were touring, as you said, Andrew, on a regular basis after World Series cricket. Because I think Kerry Packer and the Australian Cricket Board recognised that we drew crowds and people wanted to see us play. And we're down there on a regular basis and we enjoyed every tour. I wonder whether you thought about or as a team talked about the idea that there's an implicit anti-racist message or imperative simply behind your success. Because my recollection of that period in the 1980s, Australian suburban playgrounds full of white kids arguing about whose turn it is today to be Viv Richards or Gordon Greenwich or Joel Garner or indeed Michael Holding. And there's generations of white kids in, in England and in Australia and elsewhere in the cricket playing world who would have grown up with these pictures and posters on their bedroom walls. Do you think that stuff sets in somewhere? I am well aware of things like that happening, Andrew. And that is why I tell people that racism is not something that kids grow up with. It is something that they learn. You are not born a racist. And it is something that they learn because of the system and the society in which they grow And that is why when people tell me that racism is not institutionalized or systemic, I tell them they have no idea what they are talking about. Because kids will grow up with those thoughts. I want to be the next white Michael Holding, white kids. I want to be the next Viv Richards. But by the time they get into the system, by the time they get into the society, by the time they join these institutions where they are working and where they are interacting with people, it changes them. Even though they personally might not want to change, I might not think that they are changing. It seeps into your head. That is why we need to make sure that the institutionalized and systemic racism that's in this world can be gotten rid of. Otherwise, we'll have kids growing up. I I wrote about it in my book with my mother. 50 odd years ago, she saw a black and a white kid playing downstairs in New York in a backyard. And she said, she thought, she said, we have a chance because she saw that. But again, by the time they grow and get into the system, they go two different directions. And that is what I'm talking about with racism. That being the case, do you think sport is perhaps well positioned to be a useful crucible for the discussion of racism? Because sport, at least in theory, and I think probably more than most other fields, is a meritocracy. You you know, you either can bowl onto a sixpence at 90 miles an hour or you can't do it. Does that actually help sport set an example or is sport because of that so far removed from the real world that it it doesn't really help us it's the latter andrew let us look at apartheid south africa do you think if apartheid south africa had allowed multiracial sport and allowed anyone as once they are good enough to represent south africa in whatever sport but they still left the playing field and went back to the apartheid system in life. Do you think that would have helped South Africa? No. Fixing every sport will not solve one problem in the world. The society needs fixing. It's the society from which people come from to play sport. Unless you fix the society, we're going nowhere. 
does sport nevertheless have a particular power in this regard? Because even if it is divorced from the real world, it is still somewhere incredibly prominent and incredibly visible where it is more or less, one would hope, completely impossible to deny or disrespect black accomplishment. Andrew, I can't agree with you in that regard, you know, because if you spoke to Ebony Rainford Brent, she would tell you exactly what she went through as a black cricketer here in England and exactly the problems she had. So it is easy to say that sport you can't deny it. You can deny it. It is not something you can deny coming from the Caribbean because, for instance, Jamaica, no one could tell you saying Bolt in Jamaica that he's not the fastest. And then he proved himself in other countries. But if Usain Bolt was to grow up in some other country, he might not have been able to get the opportunity to show that he is the fastest. And that's what I'm talking about. Ebony Rainford Brent suffered tremendously in England. First black woman to represent England in cricket, but she suffered tremendously where that was concerned. So sport can help, yes. But it is not true to say that you cannot be denied in sport. We should talk a bit, I guess, as well about what you do now, as in being a, a cricket commentator and being a cricket broadcaster. I want to ask you the same question about that that I asked you about being a fast bowler. Was was there a point at which you realised that you're also really unusually good at this? Again, Andrew, I don't think about those things, you know. I'm happy that I was, I've been able to work for so long as a cricket commentator. I know as time has gone on, I have improved because initially when I started, I think I was pretty ordinary and I was so nervous and didn't know exactly what was going on around me. But I learned from a lot of great commentators that I learned, that I worked with. You know, I, two Australians come to mind immediately, Richard Benno and Ian Chappell. And then, of course, Tony Gregg was, wasn't a bad man to work with. He either coming to England, I worked with some good commentators here. So I can understand, you know, my growth in that department and people I hear enjoy hearing me as a commentator, but I don't think about things like that. I try to just go out, do my job and hopefully do it at a, a very good level. I don't do social media, so that doesn't affect me in one way or the other. People are saying good things or bad things about me. I just concentrate on doing my job. Similarly, when I was a cricketer, I didn't read a lot of newspaper reports. I concentrated on trying to bowl, trying to get people out, and my teammates and my captain and the selectors would let me know if I'm doing a good job or not. You were a very, very fast bowler among fast bowlers, as were the rest of that formidable uh, West Indian pace battery. You know, Andy Roberts, Joel Garner, Colin Croft, Malcolm Marshall. But because in cricket, one of the curiosities of it is that bowlers, of course, have to go out and bat. So you would have had to go out and bat, probably not wearing a helmet when you were doing it in the 70s, in a period in which there were other great fast bowlers, not just from the West Indies, bowling at you. So is there a way you can explain what it's like to go out there and face somebody bowling at you at 90 miles an hour? Not very nice. (laughs) (laughs) My first course in the six to Australia. You know, Australia had a lot of great fast bowlers, as you know, at the time. Lillian Thompson are names that people remember just just like that, without even think, thinking about it. But there were some other guys around, even playing just in the state games. There was a guy called Wayne Pryor in Adelaide. He was extremely fast. And then you had other fast bowlers who played for, for Australia, perhaps weren't extremely quick, but they were bothersome. There was Gus Gilmore, the left-armer. The left, left 
And I battled against all these guys in Senefice 76 with very little protection. I just said, no helmets were around in Senefice 76. The pads and the gloves that you wore then didn't offer a great deal of protection. You had frontline batsmen, Gordon Greenwich, I remember distinctly, pushing towels down the front of their pads to make sure that when the ball hit the pad, it didn't come through the pad and hurt, and hurt them. That's the sort of pace you're batting against. And of course, this lack of proper protection that you had. But you had to do it, Andrew. It's part of the game. You go out there and you hope to keep your eyes on the ball because I went out as night watchman on a couple of occasions. You hope to keep your eyes on the ball and you hope that you don't get hurt. But, you know, that's just part of the game, part and parcel of being a cricketer and being, a, being on the team. And I suppose just looking at that at the other way, did you ever have any qualms as a, a pace battery among that West Indian team over what you were subjecting opposition cricketers to? Because, again, when you go back and, and look at that footage, which this may be middle age setting in, but I can remember watching a lot of it at the time and being just absolutely thrilled, even though you were doing it to Australian batsmen. Did you ever talk amongst yourselves, you and Roberts and Marshall and Croft and Garner, about whether this is all getting a bit much and whether we should back off a bit? No, that never <laughs> entered our minds at any point at all. If you go back and look at those YouTube videos and or look at even look at the statistics those days, Andrew, not many batsmen got hit in their head, which is a danger area. They were getting hit in their bodies, yes, because your body is a big part of you and it's difficult to move your body out of the way all the time. But the thing with batsmen those days, they knew that if they made a mistake and they didn't keep their eyes on the ball and they got hit in their heads, it could be extremely dangerous. So everyone kept their eyes on the ball. You would bob and weave, You'll even fall over at times to make sure that you got out of the way. And the difference now is that batsmen today, they've put a helmet on and they think they're invincible. They think they can't get hurt. They try and play shots that they are incapable of playing. And they make a mistake and the ball rams into the helmet, bang! And they shake their head and they think, oh, a bit frightening, but they're okay. If they did not have that helmet on, they would not attempt the shots that they're playing then and cricket no. The technique then saved people because people were sensible and they kept their eyes on the ball. Today, they get this false sense of protection and it doesn't work. Just as a broadcaster, as a cricket fan even, how strange has watching sport trying to carry on during a pandemic been for you? Has it been weird trying to whip up excitement about games when there's nobody in the stadium, for example? To be honest, not really. You know, I did the series last year in the middle of, of COVID when we were in a bubble. But what helped us as commentators was the background noise that we had in our ear. We had the what they call the Lord's home, the home that you get at the Lord's cricket ground throughout the day once there's cricket. We had that being piped into our ears. So that gave us some sense of normalcy. We could see the stands were empty, yes. But the mere fact that we had the, the humming in our ears to give us that some sense of people being around, helped us as commentators. And I think that got us through the, the test matches that we had last summer against Pakistan and, and the West Indies. Do you think it's been affecting the players? Would you have found it weird going out trying to bowl without a, you know, a, a crowd rising and falling with every delivery? Definitely. I think it's, it's 
a lot harder on the players than on the commentators. And the commentators are basically just describing what they are seeing. As a player, you have to find motivation to do things. Just, you know, sometimes a crowd can lift you. Whether they are lifting you because they are cheering for you or they are lifting you because they are trying to demoralize you by you know, saying booing or whatever, that can still lift you. And players need that. A lot of players can self-motivate. Not a problem, but not everyone can. And sometimes you just need a little bit of an atmosphere to help you along. Running in and bowling into an empty stadium and you're hearing no noise, or especially when you're running in, there's absolutely nothing happening around the ground. I don't think that is great for a sportsman. Michael Holding, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Michael's book, Why We Kneel, How We Rise, is available now in paperback. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview, which was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.